Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Today we have Dr. Andy Abernethy who is going to be speaking with me about the book of Isaiah. That's a shared interest of ours. I teach a class on Isaiah here at Regent and have appreciated Andy's work. And so uh, it's a a privilege to be able to speak with him. Uh, Thanks so much for listening and for uh, supporting this show. We we shared over the last couple, uh, a few episodes ago, um, a new podcast, which we launched, launched called In Parallel. And that's a podcast hosted by Brent Strong, who's been on the show a number of times. And it's uh, focused on the intersections of contemporary and biblical poetry and uh, the way that they can mutually illumine, illuminate one another. And it's a, it's a really different kind of show than, than On Script or Biblical World, our, our two podcasts uh, besides In Parallel. And I think you'll really enjoy it. And we'd appreciate if, as we begin the show, that you could share it with others. And we're going to do that show by season, so we're in season one right now. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, and I also wanted to mention that this summer, I'm going to be teaching a course that's uh, like a a week-intensive course on violence, wrestling with violence in the Old Testament here at Regent. And uh, it's actually in spring, um, like in May. And it's a beautiful time to come to Vancouver. So if anyone's interested in that, get in touch with me and enjoy the show. Our guest today is Dr. Andy Abernathy, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. He's the author of Eating in Isaiah, published by Brill 2014, The Book of Isaiah and God's Kingdom, published in 2016, God's Messiah in the Old Testament in 2020. Discovering Isaiah most recently in uh, 2021, and he has a forthcoming book called Savoring Scripture, a Six-Step Guide to Studying the Bible with IVP. And he's also edited Isaiah and Imperial Context, the Book of Isaiah in Times of Empire. Andy, welcome to OnScript. It's great to be on with you, Matt. Thanks for having me join you. Yeah, you're someone I've, I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while, and to connect with more um, just because of our shared interest in, in Isaiah and our love for that book, uh, both in our publishing and teaching. So I'm really excited to speak with you today. Yeah, it's great to be on with you. I think I was hoping to be able to visit you during a time when I was going to spend in the UK and yeah, COVID derailed my plans. And I think you you, you were on your way to head to, to Regent. So. Yeah, yeah, I think... Um, I guess so that would have been, you were planning to come in 2020, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And did, did you end up going at all that year? Did you have to we, go and come back? Yeah, or what was so your... I was supposed to write uh, Discovering Isaiah during sabbatical for six months in, in Cambridge at Tyndale House. And we got there on New Year's Day. And, um, and, uh, and after two and a half months, almost three months, it was time to go home because of COVID. So... We we had a little couple month experience there, but uh, got cut short. Yeah, so I mean, three and a half months would have been right when so lockdown was about to happen, right? And so you yeah. skirted out. 
yeah. before that. That was hit. back when they were saying we don't know if any flights will be flying <laughs> between yeah. the UK and America, oh, so you better get a, back as soon as you can. That was a crazy time. Yeah. Um, and you know we were going to get locked down for two weeks. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I, I'm just curious to hear a bit of your story about how you found your way into biblical studies, um, and maybe some of the both how you got into it and. You know, we all hit barriers along the way. So what are some of the barriers that you had to overcome to um, kind of make your way in this field? Yeah, that great question, Matt. I I describe myself usually as an accidental academic. I, I, I meet some of my students at Wheaton College who have this game plan to become a Bible professor someday. And for me, part of my journey was I, I uh, turned... Uh, to God midway through my sophomore year of college and transferred to a liberal arts Christian college and thought, hey, reading the Bible is a good thing to start doing. <laughs> and I just was reading the Bible to kind of find life and meet with God and started taking a few Bible classes and enjoyed those and was able to squeeze one semester of Hebrew in. Um, and I was like, wow, I love this stuff. And it, it's so foreign, you know, and there's this romantic sense about the script. And and I started loving, really studying the Bible, but never thought I'd be a Bible scholar. Um, but after um, seminary and being in uh, ministry for three years, um, I'd been encouraged uh, to pursue a PhD by uh, someone who'd really influenced me during my uh, MDiv studies, a, a Dutch scholar named Willem van Gemmeren. And he said, Andy, you need to do a PhD with me someday. I'm like, I want to be exactly like you, Dr. Van Gemmeren. So yes, I'll I'll do that. So I uh I I didn't really have any sort of sense of, well, maybe you don't want to do a PhD at the same school you did your MDiv at. I, I didn't know anything about academia. So I think that's one of the hurdles, if you will, is I I kind of entered academia just completely oblivious to how the game works. And um, so I did my PhD on Isaiah and wrote on eating in Isaiah and never really thought that any of my work would have currency for anybody, <laughs> a dissertation committee maybe, but um, but I ended up getting my dissertation picked up by Brill. And that was a real boost of confidence, I think, for me to think, hey, maybe the sort of scholarship and writing that, that I was offering had a place in the field. Um and along the way, I'd say God brought a couple people in, in along my path that really kind of encouraged me. Mark Brett, who, who's now the chief editor at um, JBL, he was at a conference I was at in New Zealand when I, I began working at a college called Ridley College. And turns out Mark was just down the sh- a block down the street at Whitley College, and he became a great friend. We, we edited a book together. And he was just a real champion for me to to encourage me academically. And and another one of those same people was Lena uh, Sophia Tamayer. Um met at that same conference in New Zealand. And she's become a real encourager for me to keep um, <laughs> keep writing in the field of Isaiah. And um, so I'd say those are some her you know a hurdle for me coming out of an evangelical seminary 
without a big name PhD. I, I'm not like you, Matt, with the Emory PhD or um, all, all my colleagues at Wheaton, you know, from Harvard and Yale and so forth. And um, yeah, so so I, I think the hurdle for me was first in my person to kind of feel like, well, you know, maybe I do have, I am able to contribute to the conversation, uh, albeit in my own unique way. And uh, then there are people God brought along the way that that helped in the process. So, so going back to uh, Dr. Van Gemmeren for a moment, what what was it about his teaching that really inspired you? You said you wanted to be, become like him. I mean, that's uh, yeah, that's high praise. Yeah, yeah. He there are two things about him that I just fell in love with. One. Aside from his accent, I just loved yeah. his accent. Um, I, don't, I don't hear you trying to imitate that. So, you, well, I, no, I mean, I, I, sound, I sound British or Jamaican when I try to do his accent. But um, he, um, two things. He would walk around the classroom holding the Hebrew text open like a rabbi. He was just so fluent in the biblical languages and just so fluent with Hebrew and had this love for the scriptures. And, and that to me was like, wow, I want to get to the point where the Hebrew Bible's my Bible. You know, I, I want to get to the point where I'm able to turn from page to page and see connections between words. And so this real kind of handle of the text. Um, and then the other thing that was just, um, I think, mind-blowing to me in certain respects is he would actually be theological as he was doing his interpretation. And, and what I mean by that, he, he wouldn't take like a quick jump to Jesus when he was reading in the Hebrew Bible. It was a rich, thick reading, but he was willing to kind of read the text as canonical in a sort of canonical way in the spirit of childs that really, I think, opened a horizon for me that excited me, um, that like, wow, I um, I love and benefit from historical backgrounds, but I think what really lit my fire was to think about the theological dimensions, and with that, the social connections. He was always preaching about social justice from the prophets and the connection to life and him being an immigrant in America. And, you know, so so there was this, he, said he was kind of ahead of the game in this sense of kind of not leaving the way the text interfaces with our lived experience um, that really drew me in. Yeah, interesting. Hearing about his facility with Hebrew makes me think of at WTC where I used to work. I had a Dutch colleague there, and he is a systematic theologian. But in his graduate work, he had four years of Hebrew. Wow! Um, wow! And and it, uh, and he would. Um, I think he even did some work at WTC with the Hebrew module that we had. Yeah. Um, so maybe the Dutch just are really keyed into the importance of Hebrew, even for yeah. theologians. Yeah, <laughs> Just... I wish I knew Latin. I, I'd love to read Vitringa. You know, it's this <laughs> massive commentary that, yeah. um, you know, so yeah, those Dutch do have a lot to offer. <laughs> um, let's uh, talk a little bit about your most recent book, Discovering Isaiah. It's it's an interesting series. So my colleague Ian Proven, who's retiring now, 
um, uh, he he wrote the Genesis volume for that, and I had read that, and then I read yours, and it, that series really takes a unique approach in not only attending to the literature and theology of the text, which you know a lot of books do that, but also reception history, and um, so so how did you find your way into that? aspect of the field, you know, where you're reading Justin Martyr, Eusebius, Jerome, Augustine, and, um, you know, even medieval rabbinic commentaries, and so on. So what was your kind of point of entry into that material? Yeah, that great question, Matt. I, when I got asked to write this, write in this series, it was Ian Proven's work that kind of helped inspire me to want to do it, because I think he had just come out with his volume on Genesis. And I'm like, well, let me see what they're kind of after here. And I, I think what excited me, and Matt, you you can appreciate this as an Isaiah scholar and, and writing it. Once you build a base in the field, you have a pretty good handle in your area, right? So so I, I had a pretty strong uh, grasp in terms of historical context, the literary shape of Isaiah, kind of modern biblical studies. But when I saw the reception history piece, I'm like, wow, I know John <laughs> Sawyer's done work there. <laughs> and I, I, um, it would be a lot of fun to like grow in that area and see what it does. Um, so I really didn't know what writing this volume would look like because I can't pretend that I had any sort of expertise prior to working on this project. And, and that's part of why I said, yes, I want to grow through writing this. And, um, and I think the thing that needed to switch on for me and that has begun switching on for me, I'd say over the last 10 years has been to see the value of what reception history actually contributes to biblical studies. There can be a sense of like, wow, I, Let's just try to get back to what it might have meant in its original historical context. We we don't re reception history doesn't um, inform that. But what I've begun seeing is actually we're in Gadamer's philosophical outlook of us being part of this kind of horizon of uh, tradition that's emanated from Isaiah that's influenced us up to today. Um, Help me see that from a philosophical vantage point. But what I found it doing as I was reading these different commentators and scholars, what they were doing with Isaiah, it, it, it was inviting me into ranges of conversation, interactions with the text that I just wasn't as alert to. And all of a sudden, new dimensions of the text start opening up, um, and especially new dimensions of how the text might speak within an ecclesial uh, context and a, and a more overtly Christological readings, you, you know, what, what does that look like? So I, I almost would say I found myself learning how to read Scripture within and as part of the grammar of the church. Um, but simultaneously, what I realized in the process, too, is the church was always doing that with the Jewish tradition looking in at, what are you doing with Israel's scriptures here? What are you doing with Isaiah? Defend what you're doing. And, you know, I, I just found incredible enrichment uh, through through doing that. Were, were there any particular surprises along the way in terms of, like, how reception history shed light on particular issues? 
Mm, yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, I'll just give one off the top of my head. Isaiah 6 is one of the most commonly known passages. You know, it begins in, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord Adonai sitting on the throne. I, I'd written about this book. I'd read lots of articles about uh, or chapter Isaiah 6 in various places. But when I read Aquinas's commentary on it, which, by the way, those of you who are listening, it's available for free in English translation online. <laughs> Someone made it available before it's print, even been printed. I mean, incredible resource. Um, Aquinas asked a question I had never asked. Namely, what does it mean for Isaiah to claim that he's seen God, the the um, God who is spirit? And he had to wrestle with, how do we explain the seeing, seeing of God? Um, and that's obviously uh, an important question that I just wasn't wondering about. Most debate is, was this a vision that happened in the temple? Is it of the temple? Is it a vision of, of a heavenly scene? You know, but but it's not wrestling theologically with that sort of question and that tension of, well, I thought God was an unseen God, I, you know, and so, so, yeah, and so then he quotes from Pseudo Dionysius and all, all these people to try to give an explanation, but it, but it really invited me into probing those theological dimensions of the text, which um, I think adds something into the mix that um, contributes to what the historical and literary observations are giving us for a text. And one of the other issues that comes up in reading early Christians on Isaiah is the the sort of proof from prophecy approach to um, Isaiah. And I'm, I'm curious about how you wrestle with that approach to reading texts um, messianically in the book of Isaiah. So you talked about an overt Christological lens, and sometimes that Christological lens can smother the book of Isaiah. And then and then in reaction, sometimes scholars like to push back and say, this isn't about Jesus at all. So how do, how do you kind of navigate that, the, the proof from prophecy approach? Yeah, yeah, that that's a great question, and and you know you see you Eusebius's proof of the gospel and others are are really kind of cataloging from the Old Testament questions, right? That these early Christian communities were facing, like how can they claim that you they as Gentiles follow a Jewish Messiah? How can they claim that they follow some uh, a Jewish Messiah? that is not just Jewish and human, but is also divine. So they're kind of mining back through the text um, and trying to find these, these different proof texts that, you know, support uh, the, the cases that they're trying to make. Justin Martyr, you know, is a, the main one people think of in, in doing this. And I think I'd say two things uh, happened as a result of, of that. Um, first is I just found it interesting, even if I didn't agree with some of the moves they were making, to see what was animating their need to make those moves in their context to point to a, I mean, think, how how as an early Christian do you defend a divine human God, right? I mean, Isaiah 7 is a great place to, to start. But on the other hand, when you read Isaiah 7, 14 in its context, it's clearly talking about 
a young child who's going to be born in the 8th century. So they would raise all sorts of arguments because the Jews were saying that to them, wait a minute. And they'd say, but they'll look at the word sign. They'll say, well, if it was a sign, it had to be something unique. It had to be a miracle, you know, which, which of course I don't find that line of argumentation convincing, but it's one that's repeated throughout the tradition. So, so I think that even points where I wasn't so much agreeing with, with the moves they were making exactly, I think I grew to appreciate kind of why they were doing that. But on the other hand, what I found happen was they would expose parts of Isaiah to me that I hadn't initially kind of been connecting to uh, to Christ that I found like, oh, this this does kind of resonate. This does ring true. And, and one of the things, for instance, um, and, you know, I don't mean this as a any negative to our Jewish listeners, but one of the things that they point to is Isaiah 6 as anticipating a hardening of heart and how they they try to not just cherry pick individual verses from Isaiah, but they do kind of graft a narrative. And it's similar to actually what uh, Ross Wagner does when he looks at Romans 9 to 11, drawing on Isaiah, of kind of seeing how there is an expectation of Jewish hardening. Because that's one of the, uh, I guess, objections they were receiving is, but how come the Jews aren't following this Jewish Messiah that you're claiming came? And and so they were looking at passage, and frankly, I'd never really thought of thought of that before. So I, th- I think there's a distantiation I can kind of have as I look at what the early interpreters were doing and saying, even though I find myself as an interpreter in the Christian tradition— I can describe what they're doing. I can appreciate what they're trying to do. And for me, as I, and that's one of the beauties of this volume is your, this series is you're invited to integrate the historical, the literary, and the reception. And for me, it doesn't mean I have to buy into everything reception's doing, but it becomes a fertile conversation partner that helps me maybe in a more, um, I guess others will have to say in a more, I, I don't know, robust way, being Christological in a way that doesn't kind of do the kind of proof texting uh, patterns we see. Yeah, and, and it at least gives a window into this early Christian community that was actually engaging with uh, their Jewish contemporaries about how to interpret Isaiah, which is itself something that a lot of the churches, you know, it's not even on their radar. I, I remember when I, I went to Israel, first in 1999 as an undergrad. And um, I went to uh, to JAC, at which time there were Wheaton students there as well. And I went to this shop of these two guys, Dove and Moshe. I don't know if you've ever been to their shop, but they um, they they set up this, sh- this kind of uh, souvenir shop as a place for people to process what they're learning as well. And the one guy teaches at a a Jewish seminary there. And I remember going in and he said to me, you know, we're, we're here to talk if you want. And I was really interested. I had never really talked with Jewish people about the Bible. And he said, I bet you're, you know, a lot of Christians wonder how Jewish people don't see Jesus in the suffering servant in Isaiah. And I was like, yeah. You know, I hadn't even heard crazy stuff when I was a kid, like that it was like cut out of the Bible or something. And, uh, and he said, you know, we see 
the servant as Israel. And, and I, and I, it just really got me thinking and, and prompted careful, more careful reflection on how I connect Jesus and Isaiah um, in light of the fact that there are alternatives. Uh, not actually, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but, but to see that the two as viable ways of reading Isaiah. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's so good. But by the way, we just had a whole group of students come back from a semester abroad at JUC. So, so Wheaton, uh, Wheaton students are still there, and and I, I'm sure that they may maybe visited the same uh, same shop you did. I, I think I think your your point's really a good one, Matt. Um, maybe one way to talk about it is a layered sort of reading, a reading that recognizes um, different layers of of reading. And you, you know, it's fascinating too. I mean, Isaiah 53, as you know, it's just such a hard passage. I mean, I, I think when I wrote on that chapter, you have Ibn Ezra and Brever Childs both saying this is like the hardest passage ever, you know, and, um, you know, textually and interpretively, I mean, it is such a challenging passage. And it, it's funny, this is somewhat peripheral to what you were saying, but Eben Ezra, in his commentary, gives a reading of Isaiah 53, explaining it as Israel all the way through. And then at the very end, he says, but I actually think it's the prophet that it's describing, but I don't want to unsettle people. And then he just lets it pass. Um, so, so, so you just see even him um, wrestling with that and, and, and you, a passage with just such layers of ambiguity, which allows it to kind of frame, say, the suffering experience of Israel among the nations, but framing expectations of a, a coming suffering priestly figure. You know, it's like, you know, it's it's a really difficult passage. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that raises a question too, because I know. You- you wrote this, your co-authored a book, God's Messiah in the Old Testament with Baker, um, published with Baker. And how, how do you think about the lines from Old Testament to New Testament in terms of messianism? Because you point out in the book that there's, there's no reference to the Messiah, like as an expectation of like the Messiah, singular. Um, there's certainly an expectation of an anointed Davidic figure in the future. Um, but to to kind of zero in on the Messiah is not really kind of what you get from the Old Testament. Um, but so, how do you move from Old Testament to New, and and also the Messiah category in the New Testament seems to be magnetic; it attracts things to it that we wouldn't have necessarily connected from the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, the, great, great question, Matt. You, you know, and that's part of the challenge, I think, um, of what led Greg and I to write that book. You don't see, as you said, like every passage that's messianic has the Hamashiach, you know, in in it. You know, it's you don't get that sort of nomenclature and labeling. So, so what's kind of we do in that book is is kind of recognize that, but say, well, but on the same time, there's this tradition that developed to refer to a kind of an anointed figure and having kind of a significant role and uh, establishing, you know, God's plan. So, so let's kind of go through and see what sort of expectations there might be in each corpus. 
Well, not having to kind of only look for an individual uh, figure, but but just kind of this a more general uh, term. And, and we limited our search to uh, that study to royal figures. And now this is where I've gotten in trouble with some of my fellow evangelicals who who are like, come on. You didn't talk about the suffering servant in your book, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I, but it doesn't and, and connect make, it. <laughs> yeah, and so when I look at the suffering suffering servant in Isaiah fifty three, I don't think that servant's portrayed as a royal figure. I, I just I don't see him doing the typical things that a ruler would do, and I, I see more of a priestly sort of function. And so we we focus mainly on texts from Isaiah one to thirty nine, and so so I think that what we're trying to do is kind of trying to portray okay, well, what sort of expectations are there for a coming future ruler, and letting each book kind of ha- share its own voice and bearing witness to that. Um, so obviously, as you know, First and Second Chronicles, it's debated: does it have a messianic outlook, right? Um, or is, has it seen the temple kind of priestly leaders kind of take that over and even Cyrus take over David's role of making them build a temple? And, and I, I wrote that chapter and, and kind of what you argue is, or what I kind of argued is, it does seem to hold out some of the ideals of what the best of kind of what they'd seen in their history of Davidic kingship relating to a king who had kind of center the community on the temple and kind of leave it there. And, and so, so I think what, back to your initial question, how, how do we work in a way that kind of bridges Old Testament bearing witness to, to Jesus? Um, I, I think what I've tried to do is learn from Christopher Seitz and Reverend Childs is saying, okay, let's let the Old Testament have its own discrete voice and bearing witness to, in our case, a royal figure as as we see these books portraying them. And then to reflect theologically, okay, well, well how is, does what it's saying here accord with what we see in Jesus? It doesn't mean that Chronicles is quoted in the New Testament in this way, but um, allowing it to bear its own own witness. So, um, so that's kind of the tact we took. And um, yeah. I think that's so helpful and in, in giving the Old Testament its own voice in the first place, because then when you come to reflect on its relevance to Jesus, you're not starting from what you already know. And that, that's one of one of my concerns with approaches to messianism in the Old Testament is you go hunting from the known to the unknown and and say, okay, we know what the Messiah is. Let's go find him in the Old Testament instead of letting it speak the other way. Yeah. And I, yeah, Matt, I, I think that's so good. And I see that with my students. I'll have them read Isaiah 9 with this pro- prophecy. And I'm like, okay, so what are you seeing here? They're saying, oh, his name's going to be Mighty God. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. unto us a child is born. I'm like, okay, what do you see in the next verse, though? Ah, oh, uh, f- throne. Um, oh, it's going to be established in justice and righteousness forever. And they'd never thought about the hope for a messianic king who would bring justice and righteousness to our world. Yeah, yeah. And that's because you haven't read, say, 70, 80% of Old Testament hopes of a future ruler is going to bring justice and righteousness. 
which how the church would have been in such a better position to navigate the last year and a half in America um, of pretending like, you know, of acting as if justice and righteousness isn't a chief concern of what God's plans are and with what he intends to do in this world. Yeah, so, it's somehow extrinsic to, you know, the heart of things, right? Yeah, of what, of what, of what they've been, yeah, of, of the way we're kind of accustomed to thinking about the Messiah. Um, and yeah, so, so to your point, yeah, to, to be able to come and try to have, uh, let the Old Testament speak and bear its own discreet witness, I, I think is just uh, important. Yeah. And I, and I find as a, you know, both for myself and with students, that is the hardest thing is to let, I mean, in more broadly to let the text have its own voice. Um, to let it mess with our categories and assumptions and speak in its own terms. But it's it's a necessary precondition for there to be a dialogue, you know, for us to hear it as an other. Um, it can't be an echo. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a great. Yeah, so I, I want to switch to a speed round here and uh, start out with a world that you know well, uh, basketball. Oh, and, and okay. I, you Here know, we go. I did not grow up in such a prestigious uh, basketball family. Uh, so you, your dad played in the NBA, right? He did. He okay. did. Yep. I wish uh, I could remember those days, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a little infant. Okay. So you're quite young at that time. Um, and, and and so he he played. So who did he get to play with? Julie Serving? And, um, he played against Dr. J. He, he's yeah. got a picture of him making a basket over Dr. J. It might've been his only basket in that game, but, <laughs> but someone got a picture of it. He, That's fantastic. He dra- yeah. He, he got drafted by the Lakers. And, uh, at the time, um, um, Jerry West was the coach and Pat Riley was the announcer. Pat <laughs> and, Riley. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so the he went announcer. on to own, own the magic. Was that that guy? Yeah. Or... Well, he's in the heat now. With oh, the, the heat. heat okay. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, they said, when they called my dad's college coach, Bobby Knight, and said, you know, you think Tom Abernethy will be smart enough to pass the ball to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? And he's like, oh, yeah, Tom's a great passer. He doesn't turn it over much. So <laughs> that was the concern, huh? Yeah, that was the concern. So <clears throat> Yeah. So you, so you played basketball as well, right? I did. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and so beside your father, you know, there's always a debate in basketball. Who's the, the greatest of all time? So who? Uh, who who would you say is the, wow. the goat? I mean, Matt, you you and I probably grew up in the same era. It's hard to go against Michael Jordan. I mean, he was he was un unbelievable in what he accomplished. Fun to watch. Um, but you know, LeBron. I mean, he, he is such a incredible, well rounded player. Um, it's hard to compare eras, and I even like Steph Curry. I mean, the way he's just changed the game with his shooting and playing. I mean, you're um, you're, so, you're, uh, you're appealing to all sides here. You got you got to pick yeah, pick so one. I, you can tell I'm a middle child, Matt. All right, I'm used to keeping the peace. So I, I um yeah. But if I had to pick one, I, I I'd say MJ. Okay. All right. What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last fifty years? That's a great, great question, Matt. I. Maybe I'll go with what's been most impactful for me. Uh, I mean, I in our field, I mean, Reverend Child's introduction to the Old Testament of Scripture, I mean, that changed the field. 
all of a sudden a new branch was born. (laughs) I mean, and it's just an introduction to the Old Testament, you know, like that changed the way we talk about Isaiah, that changed the way we thought about the book of Psalms. That was huge. And I'd also say Adele Berlin's book on the dynamics of biblical parallelism just changed the way we think about how biblical Hebrew poetry worked. So those two kind of come to mind for me. I mean, Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination, too. I mean, the way he, wow, the way he shows how prophecy just tries to alter the way uh, society's viewing the world. I mean, it's yeah, the, all of those are come to mind for me. What's what have you learned through failure? That's a great great question. I mean, one of the things one learns through failure is is first of all, it strips you away of where you've maybe been building your identity around. I mean, I can even look at if we want to talk basketball. I mean, I I kind of had hopes of being this great basketball player and my dad was in the NBA you know I thought I was going to be like an Indiana all-star my senior year you know and, and I ended up at a small d1 school but ended up like hardly playing there my, my call I, I had no sort of great college uh, basketball kind of experience and and I look back on that it was like that really forced me to re- clarify where where my identity lies similar like whenever you send a journal article out and it gets rejected you know you're just like you know yeah maybe i'm not all that and and then some in this area you know and and you start realizing your limits and you start kind of being more okay with your your limits um yeah. Yeah. Great responses. Yeah. For me. Yeah. I just say for me, I mean, back to it. When you grow up with a dad who's an NBA basketball player, you feel like your life isn't going well if you're not like succeeding and being the most important person right. in your area or field. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I've had to learn, like, I may get a thousand dollar pay raise each year for the rest of my life. You know, I may, I may read books that like, a thousand people will read, you know, I'm not like a, my colleague, Esau Macaulay, you know, who's going to write these game changing books, but, but realizing, you know, life, my life isn't wrapped, you know, going to be grounded in success. And as you know, even in the field of biblical studies, you dream of first delivering your first conference paper then you get something published and you want more and more and more and more and more. And eventually you, and you fail along the way and you try to keep going, but um, you realize that you can't, you can't look to that for your sustenance in, mm. in your calling. Mm. Yeah. The, the, the discipline has a, has a way of hanging these little carrots out in front of us. And then we all go running for them and, and, Kind of lose sight of the fact that they're just little carrots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember when I went into my first uh, SBL Isaiah session. I was expecting like five thousand people to be in that one room, you know, because of course everyone loves Isaiah like I do. And then you're like, oh, I'm sitting next to Villain Book, and you know, and oh, there's Hugh Williamson. Oh, and there's thirty people here, you know, and you're like, 
people around the world could care less, like what, you know, but we, we all enjoy being together in those discussions, but yeah. yeah take an Ecclesiastes a, approach and just enjoy that moment for what it is and not try to kind of pin it down and make it permanent and a monument. Yeah. Good. What's one idea in biblical studies you think needs to die? One idea that needs to die, you know, one, one idea in, in biblical studies, I would just push against, especially for those in a con- confessional environment, is I think we've unwittingly adopted a mindset that the divine intention in the scripture is exhausted by the human authorial intention, namely that w- that somehow we've accepted, I recognize at a kind of a humanistic, secular kind of scholarship sort of way, all we have to work with is what the human authors give us, right? All, all we have to work with is kind of what we can can tease out and sort of materially what we see, touch, and feel. But sometimes we have it in our mindset that that exhausts what God can say through that passage. And the reason I think that's problematic is we have students coming into our classrooms who are told, well, everything you've ever thought about reading the Bible before is completely wrong because you've never thought about what the human author is actually trying to say here. And what that means is God has never been able to speak to them through Scripture up to that point. Their grandma can't hear from God through Scripture. You know, I, you know, I, I think that this, this um, yeah, so that's one idea I'd like to see expanded, if you will, to, to, or, or at least have more humility to recognize God can have intended more and continue to speak beyond what the human author might have had in mind. Yeah, yeah, good one. Um, so we already talked about basketball, but do you have a, um, another backup career if you weren't doing, <laughs> if you weren't doing this? Oh, that's a, that's a great, great question, man. Or dream uh, backup, be, you know? Basketball coach. Basketball coach. Okay. Basketball coach. Uh, that would be, that would be a lot of fun. The, the combination of leadership, uh, shaping people's lives, uh, that in, in, in pastoral ministry, I guess, too, is, yeah, in there. Um, I, I do a random word generator and, um, to do a book review. So if you could just review this book. Um, so the word that came up was elite. And and the first book that came up on Amazon was Elite, A Hot Billionaire Romance. Um, this is the first in the Elite Doms of Washington book series. Uh, it's that the daughter of a political journalist, Christina Snow, knows how to avoid the meat grinder of DC's gossip mill, get good grades in college, work hard at boutique restaurant where literally no one brings their spouse. And never, ever bend the rules. But when she encounters Congressman Jonathan Brond, his penetrating green eyes, chocolate caramel voice, and skin tingling touch halts her breath, especially when he offers her something more. So how many how many stars do you give this book? <laughs> I, it, I'd probably give it one or I don't think you can give zero stars, but that's so not your kind of book, huh? Not, not my kind of book. Uh, elite. That's a that's a pretty bold title. To, yeah, yeah. What, to give for your own book, it's a hot, bi- but I guess a hot billionaire, a hot billionaire romance. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, I, I've I've heard from uh, 
the rise and fall of Mars Hill that, you know, billionaires could buy their own books and get get that book on the bestseller list. So, you know, it's true. There might be a future for it. Uh, uh, you lived in Melbourne for a little while. And uh, what did you learn about life in Australia that surprised you? Like, um, you, know, do, you know, did you come with stereotypes about kangaroos and poisonous skakes? Oh, the, the, the Aussies had so much fun with Katie and I. We so wanted to see a kangaroo and they were just laughing. And we were, we were driving to a camp uh, with some friends and right there's kangaroos pull off to the side of the road. Let's get a picture of this. And they're just laughing because, you know, just like seeing a raccoon. Right. 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 Um, but but one thing I, I loved about the Aussie culture is uh, they're the idea of being mates. You're all mm, mates. So mm. when the taxi driver comes, you don't sit in the back seat because they're your mate. You know, you sit in the front by them. You know, you parents call their kids mate, you know, and you don't tip the waiter because they're your mate. You don't want to act like you're like giving them a handout, you know. So so that so I I loved that sort of uh, spirit of, uh, yeah, oh, being mates cool. with everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, were you getting... Um, bitten by poisonous spiders and snakes every day. You know, is that is that really how it is? Yeah, that that's what you that's what you read first when you search Australia, visiting Australia, all their poisonous stuff. I didn't see a single snake. I see, and I I see more bugs in my house in Wheaton than than I did in in Melbourne. So, um, but I did have a student get bit once by a poisonous spider, and um, he and he. Uh, it messed him up. <laughs> yeah, he he had to. He he was out for a week or two and then came back. So it, it's yeah. probably like bear attacks here in the Northwest, like um in in BC. Uh, you know, like I don't know anyone that's gotten mauled by a bear, but if if you sort of ask around, like someone might know someone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. If you ask around enough, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So exactly. I, I have a question. To go back to Isaiah. I've I've often wondered, pondered the question of how Isaiah was meant to be read and received. Um, you know, I can imagine with a book like Samuel, where you've got this story that it was meant to be read, I don't know if in one sitting or in one hearing, performed in one hearing. What about Isaiah? It's such a bumpy ride. There, it, There is literary structure to it and coherence, but it, it doesn't just sort of read straight through in the way that a narrative does. How is this book meant to be taken up? Yeah, man, Matt, great, great question. And I think it's such a good question that it's animated scholarship for the last 40 years to how do we, how do we read this book as a unity? And and you have a Jewish scholar like Benjamin Somer saying, you know, Jews don't read books this way. You know, we, we, we would read just individual passages, maybe in conjunction with other passages. And, and it's the same in, I, I'm in an Anglican tradition. You know, we read from, uh, you know, individual passages in conjunction with others. So so I think there's a, a value of, of seeing, okay, yeah, we whatever approach we take doesn't have to be overridden by a larger schematic for reading the entire book. Um but one of the things that has come to me over time has been to see a number of kind of a couple of different movements across the book that tell a larger story. Uh, in this book, I identify four phases of a story, uh, the, the first being how God, as this holy God, is bringing judgment on 
uh, Israel and Judah and on the nations around them. But then in phase two, which you see in Isaiah 40 to 48, a focus on, well, God's not done, though. He's going to use Cyrus to bring you back to the land uh, for you to rebuild the temple. Um, but then it's like, okay, phase three continues. You know, God has a work through a suffering servant by which his people will be reconstituted. Their sins will be dealt with. And then, but there's still phase four waiting, a, a kind of new creation, a new heaven and new earth. So kind of seeing this larger storyline, I think is helpful. And it, it was uh, old Elhanis uh, Steck who kind of helped me first see this sort of larger meta narrative that kind of wraps up all of the prophetic history, which, which kind of moves from the Syrian era, the Babylonian era, the, the exilic and post-exilic era up to the new heavens and new earth, which kind of creates a larger storyline within which we're all living in uh, still today as we await sort of a new creation. So so I think that that storyline does give at least some handholds to kind of think of we're presented with a book that does have a, generally speaking, a, a narrative arc to it. The other thing I'd point to is it does seem like there are passages kind of strategically positioned at key points in the book that ultimately culminate in worship. Isaiah 12 ends off chapters 1 to 12. Isaiah 27 ends with worship uh, for 13 to 27. You, you have the very end of the book ending in that way too. So, so I think there might not be uh, only a narrative arc, but kind of things that the book's trying to move us towards in terms of responding in obedience or seeing that the ultimate destiny is going to be worship and so forth. Yeah, and you, you've also touched on the theme of justice, seeking justice in Isaiah. And this is another topic that is obviously of major significance to the prophet, and um, but also one that could is malleable, <laughs> and, and maybe not always in a good way. So um, the, the admonition, seek justice, is vague enough that it can be taken up for any cause, toward any end, and maybe that's the aim of leaving it so open. What do you think the prophet has in mind when he says, seek justice, like in chapter one? And and there, you get those little glimpses of like specificity in chapter 10, maybe, or 58, or something like that. But Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, I th- there's a range of ways of thinking about what, what does it mean to actually seek justice? And when you look at Isaiah 1, there does seem to be a chief concern about widows and orphans in the court systems of not receiving a fair um, hearing, not even having their cases heard. Um, so, so there I think there'd be a sense of trying to push for reform to ensure that there's a fairness of justice for the orphan and the widow. And I mean, you see what Brian Stevenson's written about in Just Mercy, where he talks about African-American experiences in the court system. It's like, that would be the type of thing that Isaiah 1 would be like pushing for, like go for that push in a sort of um, wider sense for that. I, uh, as you know, speaking about justice in certain circles gets you in trouble. I, I had a group of people that really were mad at me when I was telling them about God calling for us to be involved in justice um, and so forth. That's so and, sad that that would. And even. Yeah. 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 Oh, it, it, you know, I had people saying, and 
I, I, I don't want to go into it, but I'll get too worked up here, Matt. But um, one person said to me who, who has substantial experience in the book of Isaiah said, well, you know, in the book of Isaiah, it's only calling for the king and rulers to be involved in justice, but not like everyday people. And I say, what about the servants of the Lord? How are they supposed to live? And what about Isaiah 58? That's not talking to like a leading elite uh, only ruling class. And, and I think we do see some examples of uh, in Isaiah 58 of some specificity uh, providing food for the hungry, uh, clothing. Um, and even chapter one, you know, it's addressed to the rulers of um, Sodom, you know, the people of Israel and the people, the people of Gomorrah, you know, so it's the, it's the rulers and the people there. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I don't like drawing that line between only rulers and, and not the people. I, I, I think Isaiah wants a whole society um, to be pursuing justice and righteousness. And, you know, but, but I think you're right. There's enough ambiguity that does lend itself to being malleable for new contexts, such as ones we're facing uh, today. So, yeah, but but it's a wonderful contribution Isaiah makes. And, and I'd say one of the most interesting things Isaiah makes is really an indictment that none of us can get away from the fact that we are culpable of injustice. I mean, all of us end up in the book of Isaiah being portrayed as, as unjust. Uh, you see that in chapter 59. He looks, he can't see it anywhere. So God takes matters into his own arm, his, his own hand to bring about that justice and righteousness he cares for. And, and I think that call, uh, thinking of the readers saying, all right, I want to be one of God's agents. I, I want to be part of that community that's pursuing what God's after, that seeing what God observes as lacking in our society. We, we want to shine forth like light. We want to be the, be righteous, pursue righteousness and justice. Yeah. yeah, it's a good word. Your next book is on exegesis, right? Um, and savoring scripture. And it's a, the subtitle is a six, um, let me just get this, a six step guide to studying the Bible. And what advice do you have for beginning exegesis student. So I'm teaching an intro to exegesis student uh, class here at Regent. It's for grad students, but uh, really for anyone, what um, what is it that you want to say to them? Yeah, yeah. I think what compelled me to write this book is more my own existential needing to work out what does it mean to take all the benefits I've gleaned from the academy like close reading of texts and their historical and literary contexts and so forth. How do I work that out into a life of faith where the Holy Spirit is part of things where where, 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 where we operate, I, I think, in a sort of closed universe sort of way when we do biblical studies. And in part it's just been my own journey of like, how, how do I keep listening for God's voice amidst this quest I have for figuring out what it's saying, you know? And so, so I think my, my advice, which I try to give in this book for, for beginners is uh, I'll, I'll set up the six steps is to start with posture, a posture of openness and humility of wanting to hear 
what's being said through the text. And step two, looking for the flow of thought in light of its genre. Step three is looking at context, historical and literary context. Step four is whole Bible, thinking about how it fits to the whole. Step five then is savoring God. And that's probably the one I'd press into your students is after they've done all that hard exegetical work of listening closely to the scriptures, what they're saying, is to then go back through and say, oh, what is this saying about God? And just praying to God in engagement with scripture. It's kind of the Lectio Divina, adding that into the into the mix at the end, because you've worked so hard to get there. And, and then the final step, step six, is a faithful response. What's it look like to live faithfully today? So it's a very confessionally written book from a posture of um, of faith. Um, so though, and and uh, I think it hopefully will be an encouragement to uh, future, um, yeah, generation of of students. Yeah, it sounds like a really valuable book. Uh, I think sometimes exegesis can be an overwhelming discipline because you get the sense from some guides to exegesis that you need to go through about 45 steps to to say that you've you're ready to start interpreting the passage and I, th- I think that can just be overwhelming and really unattainable for anyone who's not a full-time scholar yeah so that that's what I'm hoping it will duck people in and then as you know we grow you develop more and more and more skills as you go along well Andy thank you so much for taking the time to speak today about your work and your life so we really appreciate you sharing yourself with us yeah I'm honored to have been on with you Matt thanks you have been listening to onscript delectable conversations on scripture and theology if this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.